0: Welcome to the Banker Midweek, your weekly look at what the industry is talking about, offering information bankers like you need to know. Hello, and today your Midweek editors are, as always, Liz Lumley, and we are joined by Joy McKnight and Sam Friend. Sam is our online editor, the man behind the website. Hello.
1: Hello. Good to be here.
0: And hello, Joy.
2: Hi, hey Liz. Thanks for inviting me to be on again.
0: Yes, yes. I love it. Love, I love multiple. Yeah, I love when guest, guests come back. Obviously, it was a good experience. So, as our listeners know, The Banker Midweek is our weekly discussion of stories live on the Banker site and newsy bits that will influence future Banker stories. Um, and so for all of those who celebrate, we hope that our listeners had a peaceful Easter break or Passover gathering with friends and family. I know that I did as well, even though the stores were all out of lint bunnies. Oh. I had to get substandard chocolate bunnies. But <laughs> I know, these things. So we had a, a bit of a quiet week with um, no, knock on wood again, no major banking crises. But there's still a lot of analysis and muck breaking going on uh, for those of you looking for all the coverage on The Banker that we have gathered on uh, the banking saga. We have actually called it The Banking Saga. (laughs) Indeed, we
1: have uh, a section on the website. Um, Please do uh, visit and go and check out all of our coverage. Um, So over the last few weeks, you know, uh, we've had uh, uh, the initial collapse of SCB and Signature Bank, followed by the rescue of First Republic, and onto the hasty merger of Credit Suisse, its long-time rival UBS. So it's been a very turbulent time and lots to write about. So uh, Mm. to uh, visit thebanker.com, the banking
0: saga. I mean, one of the more recent stories is a story up here by our uh, uh, contributor, Tim Skeet, on the failures of a bank resolution framework. But I think we've got another doom and gloom story in the banking saga as well, Sam, don't we?
1: That's right. So later in the week, we'll be publishing um, Unraveling the Credit Suisse Merger um, uh, by a, a, a lawyer contributor. Uh, who takes a a more negative view um, than some, saying it has been predicted by some in the market that a significant number of banks will not exist in their current form in 18 to 24 months' time, either through mergers, bail-ins or collapses. So the article largely discusses uh, uh, the the litigation relating to AT1 bonds um, in the Credit Suisse case. Uh, So I, I think as we saw last week, the Swiss federal prosecutor has opened an investigation into the merger, Mm. Um, it was very, very rushed. Uh, they did it over a weekend, obviously mm. trying to get it done before the markets opened again on the Monday. But in doing so, I, th- I think they've uh, they've worried a lot of investors uh, who had been under the impression that they would have been safe with their AT1 bonds. Uh, you know, despite the small print probably saying that they, you know, they were going to lose that money in in the event um, under after what's happened. So. The author saying that there may be some uh, legal action under bilateral investment treaties between certain nation states in Switzerland, mm. allowing individual investors from a nation state to seek compensation from another nation state. Um, so, you know, we'll have to see what happens there. But um, it could lead to, you know, similar actions in, in, in other uh, later events that, you know, c- could transpire, mm. other, other bank collapses, mergers. Hopefully not, but we'll
0: see. Interesting. I, I feel like I've been hearing about banks will not exist in their current form in the next eighteen months for a very long time, though. Yeah, that's true. Mm. Obviously,
2: there's been that huge wave of uh, competition. Um, obviously, in Europe, the banks are still facing some, um, yeah, legacy crises. Not just in terms of techno technology legacy, but mm. also just in terms of, uh, uh, you know, uh, their profitability, etc. Since the financial crisis, but yeah. Uh but banks are still pretty solid. Although our cover story for the um May issue of The Banker is around what is a bank
0: and the rebirth of banking and such. Mm. Yep. I can't wait can't wait to read that one. So I'm moving on to Joy McKnight, your editor's blog, which is which is out this week on the banker website, it's saying banks need to do more to ensure responsible AI use. AI's ability to transform how the world works, consumes, and learns is highlighted by applications like Chat GPT in financial services transparency around the use of such technology is key to protecting customers and keeping their trust. Can you give us some insight on your blog?
2: Well, I just think it's a very interesting time right now for the AI industry and for the research labs that are really moving forward in terms of what they're, uh, you know, sort of the next level uh, of AI and advanced AI, etc. About a couple of weeks ago, uh, uh, an institute called the Future of Life actually released an open letter, which really called on the research labs to take a breather, or take a pause, for six months um, and to really start thinking about the standards and everything that needs to be in play to make sure that um, AI as a tool can be used for both good and have harmful effects and to make sure that, you know, we understand what those harmful effects can be. Um, uh, And it's really interesting so that up to date or up to about yesterday or the day before it had about 50,000 signatories, including like Tesla's CEO Elon Musk, Mm. you know. A whole bunch of academics, et cetera. So it's really about looking at the power of AI, um, and then you know trying to look at to make sure that it doesn't harm society, or at least we're very aware of what could happen. And I think what's interesting in terms of the banks, I was looking at this um, research done by um, sort of a think tank called Evident, and they were looking at, at you know how how public is what banks are doing with AI. How are they making it public? Because obviously the banks have been using AI and may not be on the the bleeding edge of actually creating these really powerful AI systems. But banks have been deploying AI for a long time, consumer lending decisions, risk management, that kind of thing. But then, you know, in order to maintain the public's trust in what they're doing, they should be very public about it um, and really have in place frameworks around responsible AI. And that debate and discussion has been going on for a long time. I wrote an article uh, you know, about four or five years ago, on those kind of frameworks that were being developed. But I guess the the point that the research makes is really that the banks need to be a lot more um, public about what they're doing in order to make sure that trust that with their uh, cl- uh, you know customers, etc., stays in place. Because you don't want to end up with you know a non-explainable AI or the black box mm. where these credit decisions are made, which has a huge impact on people's lives. And and yet the bank can't explain what that is, et cetera. So those frameworks are in place, some of them, but they, you know, as ca- according to Evident, they really should be made a lot more public um, and the bank should be, you know, really talking about it.
0: Mm. I want to I make a comment because I agree with, um, I'm very much on board with everything, like the latter part of what you talked mm. about, about responsible AI. And um, I think AI is, you know, a technical tool that, should be used in service of, of human work, yeah. right? Like, we we should control it. And I'm a big fan of, you know, I think banks or any organization should be very clear and public about how they're developing um, artificial intelligence. But I'm taking a little bit of a cynical view about the letter you mentioned um, that was signed by, you know, a lot of high-profile people in the tech industry, including Elon Musk, which was the top of the headline in a lot of news. And I had drinks with um, a, a senior... Um, tech person at a bank a few weeks ago. and she mentioned she thought it was interesting that chat GPT came out of open AI and not out of Google, right? And I kind of thought to myself, when I saw that letter, oh, all of a sudden, Elon Musk is concerned with society inequality. Mm. really? <laughs> mm. Um, and so I'm kind of thinking that maybe a lot of the big, powerful tech companies got caught. Um, Un, you know, unprepared, wrong footed, yeah. and they're like, no, why don't we like take a step back and slow down so that they can then develop something. So I have kind of a cynical view of that letter that it's not all about protecting society; it's about making sure Google can catch up in time.
2: Yeah, it's interesting because they actually answer that in, in here on the website. <laughs> oh, of course, to they say do. That this, Yeah, to say that six months is not enough time for things to completely change when you're building these huge systems, et cetera. Um, so they did try to answer that. But yeah, I, you know, mm. I think everyone, you know, as journalists, <laughs> we should all have a take a cynical view and really think about that. But at the same time, I do, on the other hand, what I think is that I think we really need to think about how these, like you just, you think about Chat GPT, and it went to 10 million, uh, 100 million users within two months, mm. right? And the ability of how it can affect work, you know, how we work, how we consume, how we learn, you know, ha- it ha- is going to have this huge social impact, and I just think the regulators are a bit f- far behind. And obviously, the UK uh, government released uh, uh, its white paper on on uh, deploying AI across all the different industries, and the e- and the European Parliament is is um, uh, voting on the AI Act, etc. But I still think, you know, that technology is racing ahead, uh, and how do you address it? How do you make sure it doesn't have harmful social impacts?
1: I think you know with, with all of AI in, in all industries, transparency is very important. You know, especially so in banks because of you know, as you were saying, when when they when it comes to making decision decisions on uh, people's money, you know that they're going to want to understand exactly how it works. Um, you know, we've seen in the past that there there have been issues with. Uh, um, the information um, that AI is fed to, you know, produce its results and the ethical biases yeah. that come in there. So, you know, having the regulators have, uh, keep a close eye on, on this is, you know, especially important. And when it comes to new technology, the regulators tend to lag behind anyway. Mm. But with something like AI that's, you know, accelerates so quickly. And, you know, now with the public release of uh, chat GPT, as you say, 100 million users, the, the amount of input that it's getting each day is, you know, monumental. So, you know, it's going to keep developing at a very rapid pace. I, you know, I don't know whether this, this letter that's been signed to, and ask for a, a moratorium is, you know, g- going to have any effect, whether anyone's going to listen. But, you know, it's, uh, it shows that, you know, that pe- people are concerned about this, this sort of thing.
0: One to watch, one to watch. So moving on a little bit more to um, experiments in pilots, we have an article on the site, From our contributor, Sarah Koenski. I apologize, Sarah, if I butchered your name, Uh, which is DLT pilots, distributed ledger pilots still in favor for global digital finance. The EU recently launched its distributed ledger technology pilot regime, part of the European Commission's digital finance package. And I mean, we could write a story every day about DLT <laughs> experiments and pilots and central bank digital currencies. Um, but it's interesting. I mentioned before last week on the podcast that I came back from a uh, an event in Lake Como looking at sort of global uh, the global economic trends. and there was a real kind of pushback against especially people on the distributed ledger, distributed uh, decentralized finance side of the the coin. That um, it was very much against any central authority getting involved in this mm. space, like almost kind of dystopian regime that they thought was coming forward. And you see a lot of that pushback, especially from the U.S. Um, politicians coming up, coming up out against central bank digital currencies. I think the governor of Florida has said there will be no central bank digital currencies in Florida. But um, it's interesting to see the the the. The myriad of, um, you know, uh, DLT projects going on around the globe. There's another one mentioned in the article, of course, in Singapore with the Monetary Authority of Singapore, and this sort of political pushback coming, um, kind of fighting for the soul of decentralized finance. Mm. Um, I find find, uh, crypto Twitter fascinating. I do not get involved, (laughs) but I watch it with fascination. (laughs) Anyway, we'll move on. Um, That's my comment on that. So we're going to talk about another podcast, a a rival banker portfolio podcast uh, that went live last week. So this is Functional Banking Magic. Um, And every once in a while, tech companies put out interesting reports that sometimes catch our eye. So Broadridge released a report, the 2023 Digital Transformation and Next Gen Tech Study, and they came on the podcast with SEB to discuss some of the findings. And these were um, some of them that I found quite interesting, saying that firms now spend 27% of their overall IT budget on digital transformation. That's a 16 percentage point increase versus the 2022 study. And there's always a kind of a fight between maintenance and transformation at banks. Um, So it's getting uh, more and more lately. Have, have Have you seen that? Some of the people that you've spoken to that there's this increase in the past year.
2: Yeah, definitely. And I think it's because they're partway through their digital transformation journey. So they've already moved quite a bit into the cloud, etc. So that whole legacy technology stack is maybe a bit less than it was because mm-hmm. before they were definitely spending you know, about 80-85% on just keeping the lights on. Yeah, <laughs> And now that's changing. So that's a really interesting finding
0: actually. Mm-hmm. And then others that I thought was interesting about sort of the the way different regions react to technology. So the study found that European firms were more bullish on blockchain than their U.S. or Asian counterparts. I'm not sure whether that's a political issue that I mentioned earlier. Um, not taking digital native competitors seriously enough was listed as the biggest mistake by a significant percentage of respondents, which is 39%. Um, but then, of course, European there's another regional finding. European firms are not as keen on the metaverse as other regions? Well, I guess Europe tends to be a bit more conservative on funky technology anyway. Yeah, a lot of
2: (laughs) things, especially when compared to Asia, for example. Mm. Uh, Yeah, I think that's interesting. I I think that uh, that point about not taking digitally native competitors seriously was the biggest mistake. I think that's quite interesting. I think there was a lot of, you know, arm's length kind of at the very beginning. It was very arm's length between the banks uh, and the fintech startups, etc., obviously, then they realized that they really could learn a lot, both ways, etc. So yeah, so I think that's, uh, the you know, 2020 in hindsight, (laughs) I think you would have been more on the front of like, okay, look at all this new stuff that's happening, and let's
0: embrace it. So moving on, we're only going to mention one, we're going to have a a comment about one story. But um, we we also talk about stories that are not on the banker website. Oh my God, shock horror! There are other, but can influence uh, future banker stories. So there's an article in the FT today looking at European commercial real estate. The cracks are starting to show, and that's a story that um, uh, Anita Hauser, our European editor, is working on, looking at the um, impact of commercial real estate and recent bank failures. Um, and also, I thought this was interesting in in the FT: Europe's biggest SPAC to be wound up. So this is a uh, SPACs were kind of in fashion a few years ago during the pandemic, and I'm looking very closely so I can read out what, uh, yes, blank check or special purpose acquisition companies, which raise cash by listing on a stock market before looking for a private company to merge with. I remember this was mentioned um, in 2021 at the Investment Banking, um, or our Investment Banking Awards video that we did with uh, Marie Marie Kempley. So this was Pegasus Europe went public at the height of the wave of European SPAC launches in 2021 um, and it is now being wound up. So end of an era for SPAC.
2: It's interesting though because they had that uh, end date in mind so mm-hmm. it wasn't just like a blank check forever. They definitely had an end date and a lot of them ended actually last year in October um, so there was going to be all this winding down of the SPACs, uh, you know, Um, And some of them obviously have have managed to go a little bit longer. But, yeah, I guess it's interesting right now because you just think, again, there's a lot of merger and acquisition Mm -hmm. activity happening. Um, So it's interesting that they, you know, that some of them actually didn't get a target uh, company to uh, uh, merge with or acquire. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, so, yeah. I think it's interesting. I wonder if the SPAC will continue, though. I, I, you know what I mean? It's like what happened
0: to ICOs, yeah, the crypto space. Yeah. What happened to them? Initial <laughs> coin
2: offerings. I wrote an article about that, and uh, because it was super hot. But yeah, so even though individual SPACs, for example, you know, you have the the wind up regime where they have to uh, dissolve and stuff. But you wonder whether SPAC as a as a instrument. Uh, will continue. Mm.
1: Going back to you know the regulators playing catch up, I think you know that's what's happened with SPACs They're starting to you know more heavily weigh down on on Spax. So they're not quite the uh, you know exciting exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, not the Shaquille O'Neills celebrity endorsed you know mm. uh, <laughs> getting a quick buck sort of idea that they once were. So you know, people will be on to the next thing next, I'm sure. So.
0: I'm sorry, I, I wanted to move on to the next, but I mean, I'm always intrigued with why I thought SPACs was interesting at the time and why I thought ICOs were interesting at the time was this alternative fundraising, you know, because this, in terms of disruption, why don't we look to disrupt the way, you know, traditional finance happens, traditional banking happens, and these seem to be kind of an idea about how to create alternative routes to funding, and we are in a funding Crisis right at the moment, and they don't seem to have been as successful as mm. we had hoped. No. Traditionalist win. Okay. Our last story, because I just love the term Bitcoin. Uh, the Bank of England begins building a Bitcoin team. The Bank of England has opened recruitment for staff to oversee the development of its proposed central bank digital currency. The central bank wants to create a team of up to 30 people to oversee the project, according to a report by The Times. This was in uh fin extra today and um my lovely boss joy mcknight has told me i should write a poem about Britcoin. i I think i might write a song yeah (laughs) exactly i think so i'm just saying whenever you built a team please keep the name Britcoin. please please whoever is listening from the bank of england i know you think it's not fun and it's you have to be very serious but i think you're missing a trick here Mm.
1: yes it's there for the taking
0: it's there for the taking I will use the Brit coin. I don't care. Okay. Um, any other? No? We done for the week? I think so. This has been a good week.
2: Yeah, it's been great. Lovely. It was super interesting.
0: Lovely. Thank you, Joy. Thank you, Sam, for joining us. Thank you, Liz. Lovely. This has been The Banker Midweek. Thank you for listening to The Banker Midweek, part of the portfolio of podcasts from the editorial team at The Banker, available on thebanker.com and wherever you get your podcast fix. Search on The Banker Podcasts to listen to more.